0: Hello, welcome to the Theology Pubcast. And you have turned in to the 100th episode of the podcast. We are astounded. You're probably astounded. It's just amazing that this thing has actually been around as long as it has, and the audience continues to grow. And we're very grateful for that. But anyway, uh, by the time you hear this show, it will be 2021. And man, are we glad to be out of 2020. <laughs> And hopefully it's going to be a good year, although uh, some of the signs of the times don't seem to uh, give much prospect for hope of that. But hey, hope springs eternal, and uh, we believe in the resurrection, and so we're, we're good. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, right. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been, I'm an author. I've been a real estate investor. I've taught philosophy to undergraduates uh, in college. I've done a number of things, but anyway, enough about me. So, Tom, tell us about you, and tell us about where you are. You know, for those who are listening, uh, you know, just you know, listening and can't actually see. Uh, Tom is situated in a beautiful <laughs> forested environment. So, tell us about that, Tom.
1: That's right, and uh, and and I only wish that I actually was really in that environment, <laughs> um, but but the picture is there, and it's it's one of the most uh, beautiful uh, pub areas in Oxford. And if you go a little bit outside into the shire a bit you you walk along the meadows and where on one side you have uh wild horses running and the other you have uh a lot of fascinating history um after that long walk and you you will actually pass another um pub along the way and i could be wrong but i think it's actually called the birch it's been a long time but this is the perch (laughs) so (laughs) if you keep going you get to this uh this very scenic pub um, has an excellent menu. It's, al- it's almost on the ed- edge of uh, being a restaurant in terms of its uh, menu. So it's not just the classic fish and chips. Uh, it, it used to have a very nice uh, spectrum of beverages and, uh, and it has a beautiful porch overlooking uh, some running water. So, um, but I am in Virginia, which although it isn't as scenic as this where I'm currently sitting, the temperature is very nice. So I'm okay what, with that.
0: What's, what's the temperature where you are?
1: Today, it's uh, getting up close to 60 degrees, okay. so. yeah, uh, yeah. and it's been close to that in Connecticut, I know, off and on, um, yeah. but I think right now, you're a little bit cooler.
0: Well, that's uh, that's uh, shorts and t-shirt weather for the folks from Nova Scotia. You know, they uh, right. they come down to Maine in, 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 you know, in the wintertime, and it's like they're Florida, <laughs> and they're running around without any clothes on. But anyway, uh, that's, that's what life is like in Maine, but... Uh, uh, Glenn, you're not in Maine, you are out in Michigan. Tell us about Michigan yes, and introduce yourself.
2: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I am currently in Niles, Michigan, right across the border from South Bend, Indiana. Uh, where my daughter Elizabeth, who's periodically been on the show, is a theology student, uh, will be completing her Ph.D. in May, in fact. All right. And, um, yeah, I'm staying with my best man and his wife. Uh, we've been spending Christmas with them kind of forever. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's just kind of good to be out among friends. Well,
0: that's great. Now, did you mention anything about what you do, uh, Tom? I don't want to skip past you before we jump into the yeah. show content.
1: A systematic theologian and Christian ethicist and uh, sometime philosopher,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: teaching all of it uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places.
0: Okay, well, today is Glenn's date, and uh, Glenn has got some interesting stuff to, to share with us and, 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 you know, to talk about, but you want to do something before you do that. I, I, you, you mentioned something about a, a Christmas gift that you got.
2: Yes. Um, I... Um... I got a book this year uh, for Christmas that is uh, right in front of me. From your best man. From my best man. It's called Drinking with the Saints. All right. (laughs) Guide to a holy happy hour. (laughs) (laughs) And what this this book has is a series of beer and wine recommendations and cocktails for all the various saints days of the church year. Oh, nice. Uh, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes, it includes, among other things, a liturgical blessing of the beer. All right. <laughs> I thought that since this is our 100th show and beer has been a fairly common theme in all of them, <laughs> right, right. Uh, it might be appropriate finally to say a blessing. All right. <laughs> so here we go. Let us pray. Lord, bless this creature beer, which by your kindness and power has been produced from kernels of grain, and let it be a healthful drink for mankind. Grant that whoever drinks it with thanksgiving to your holy name may find it a help in body and in soul through Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Amen. That's good.
2: uh, That just sort of struck me as being an appropriate way to start off. Um, before we actually get into the topic, however, I would like to mention um, something that occurred on Christmas Day of this year. Um, a close friend of mine and a friend of the Theology Pub, which predated the Theology podcast, and actually a speaker there a few times, uh, John Rankin um, passed away. All right. John was... Um, a very rare bird in a lot of ways. He's a freelance theologian, believe it or not, you can do that. Um, Brilliant mind, uh, incredibly winsome person. Uh, He actually used to conduct these things called Mars Hill forums where he would, for example, go to Smith College, which is a very, very left wing women's college in Massachusetts and engage in a debate with Patricia Ireland, the president at that the national Women on abortion. All right. And win the audience to his side.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I believe
2: it. Just because he, he, I mean, he was just a remarkable figure, um, real compassion, real understanding. Um, and he could win over people, even if he didn't win them to Christ. He won people over to at least be willing to give him a hearing where they wouldn't give a hearing to other people. You know, yeah. He's a remarkable figure and a remarkable thinker.
0: Yeah, John was a great guy. And um, if, if listeners to the podcast would like to get a little sample of what John was like, um, I believe he was a, an occasional guest on uh, the Eric Metaxas show. So if you go yeah, to actually, Eric yeah if you go to go to eric's show you you'll see uh, eric uh with john now john john is sort of like eric um in the sense that uh he he he's a sort of a person that i describe as an up and outer if you know what i mean you know he comes from a very liberal family setting uh and he's you know we, when he came into the faith he was coming from a great distance <laughs> and uh so uh you, you run across folks like that here in the Northeast. People when I say up and outers, I, I I mean people who are coming from uh oftentimes uh elite homes who really had a chance to sample uh the world that lots of other folks look on, you know, from the outside longingly, and uh they leave that world without any regrets. Um I've got some up and outers in my church, I've known many over the years. Um Anyway, um, John was what I, I think of when I think of an up and outer, a very br- bright guy who probably, if he had just sort of stayed the course in terms of what he was raised to be, would have been, you know, uh, a, a, the kind of connected person that we, w- we normally think of when we think about, you know, those elites that despise the church. But anyway, that's the world that John came out of. And I knew John not as well as you, Glenn, but I remember being with him and, and you know different occasions and enjoying his company very much. So we'll miss we'll miss him. He was an apologist and uh, a guy who uh, was really living on the edge a lot of the time. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Yeah, so I was gonna so, smoke him uh, on Friday mornings, you know, every week. Yeah. So you know, really quite close to him. He will be sorely missed.
0: All right. Anyway, well, why don't we shift to the topic of the day, and it's your day, Glenn, so tell us what we're talking about.
2: Okay, I thought that it might be interesting to explore um, some ideas in theology that we don't normally hear about or think about, particularly in the, uh, the Western world. And I want to start with two terms that uh, go back to the Middle Ages uh, in terms of different ways of approaching God. Uh, They're the via positiva and the via negativa, that is to say the positive way and the negative way. The basic idea here is that with the via positiva, you're focusing on the things that we can affirm about God. You know, as we study God, as we're looking at it, what is it that we can say about God? What can we understand about him? What, uh, how do we develop basically what we would think of as a theology? You know, what, what are the things that we can say about God, about his name, about his character, about his works, those kinds of things? The via negativa Focuses on the limitations of human knowledge and human language when they're applied to God. And the classic way via negativa would be applied, well, one of them would be to examine every statement we make about God and explore the ways in which it's wrong. So, for example, you know, probably the most extreme example, the statement, God exists. I think we would all, you know, as, as Christians, we want to affirm the existence of God. And Egativa would say, well, not so fast. The problem that you have here is that your concept of what it means to exist is conditioned completely by your experience as a finite creature. God's existence is on a completely different order beyond what you can imagine. And so your concept of what it means to exist doesn't really apply to God because he's got a totally different type of existence, a totally different order of existence. Existence means something different for God than it does for any creature. So the via positive would say God exists. The via negativa would say, yeah, not exactly in the way you think.
0: You know, there are a couple of things that I think are good to say at this point. Uh, One is that, one of the problems that we face, and we've talked about this many times in the West, is uh, a, a tendency due to nominalism to think about existence without making that differentiation. So we'll, we'll talk about God, you know, uh, in the way that we're told we shouldn't be talking about God by the, the via negativa. And another way, yes. you know, and, and a good way for, for I think, uh, our Reformed uh, listeners and friends to sort of get a hold of this, is the via negativa is the idolatry check. You know, it's, it's the thing that keeps you from substituting the created good for the creator. So if, if, our, if our, you know, reformed listeners can keep that in mind, uh, I think it will help them because I think that sometimes many of them, when they hear, you know, oh, here we go, we're going to be talking about the East, watch out for, you know, certain things we don't want to be caught up in. Uh, I think you know with this particular with this particular exercise we 're not talking about trying to empty our minds what we 're trying we 're trying to do is make sure that we have the, we don 't have the wrong thing in mind
1: <laughs> yeah that 's uh, one of the things i think the allergy that you see to the the um, the via negativa a lot and um, actually cataphatic and and amongst a lot of the reformed. Um, It it comes in uh, from a a few different directions, but a lot of it is a suspicion that grew after Kant and their embrace of Kant one way or the other with metaphysics, because this way of referring to God um, actually went by in the earliest church, um, what we would often call the metaphysical approach to naming God. this was coupled with the personal dimension of that uh, is the God, God self name, naming, right? The self disclosure of God's name in Exodus. But these things were held together for the church all the way, really, up until um, you started to have the break with nominalism and everything else. And so, really, what it came, came about is um, is because some of the philosophical traditions that Christianity engaged use some of this thinking. People thought that that brought Hellenic thought into Christian theology and and, and distorted the personal, um, the primacy of the personal name of God, um, like Yahweh, right? Or um, you know, the Great I Am. Um, but what what you end up finding is Scripture itself, all throughout, assumes both the metaphysical and the personal, and in this close connection this is why you have the the connection between that which we can say positively and then the, the way in which we we rip out all creaturely modes of signification and show that the, these terms have their ultimate source in God who is these things in their fullness and so for example let's just take goodness well on the one hand anything we know about the good comes from being a creature experiencing the good right <laughs> Um, The whole reason we can say anything is good or not is because somehow there's a creaturely way of knowing something to be good or not. But of course, as Jesus said, why would you call me good? There is none good but the Father, right? Father is goodness itself. God is goodness itself. So in comparison, God is preeminently good. The, The ground of all goodness, goodness itself. Anything less than that only is good insofar as it is caused by that was goodness itself to be. And so that's where the positive language came, um, thought of the positive approach to naming God and talking about God is because we can encounter goodness in creation, but we cannot apply goodness from creation and then project it up into God because to do so would be exactly this, it's what Feuerbach was after, right? As the church moved to lose this connection between the apophatic and the cataphatic, the the way of negation and the positive statement, Feuerbach saw that he he basically said, all we're doing is taking creaturely attributes and and making an ideal type and projecting them onto the heavens, right? The way negation prevents that, because it says that whatever we mean when we talk about being God is good, we're referring to it as God is the cause of all goodness, but not the cause in any way like any creaturely thing is to cause. And so that, that way of causality is the positive statement. The way of negation is to show that it applies to God in an utterly unique way. And then finally you have the way of eminence, which means whatever there is in the creaturely realm that is like God, God is that in a preeminent way. King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Um, And so it's the same way with, like Glenn was talking, with being or existence. When we say God exists, we're saying God is being itself, existence itself. So God exists in an utterly distinct way to anything else. So if anything else has existence, it has it merely as a gift of the one who is existence. And so our existing is completely different, even if there is an analogy,
2: to the way that God exists, so that's just a long drawn-out <laughs> explanation. Well, we're back. We're back again to one of uh, Tom's favorite words here: is its transcendence. Yeah, you know, when when we talk about God's transcendence, we mean well. I, where I would go really is uh, is Isaiah's vision of God: "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." The The cherubim that surround the throne, the beings that are literally the closest to God, the thing that they proclaim loudest, you know, with the threefold repetition, which is raising the language to the highest height, is God's holiness, which means his utter difference, his utter separation from anything else that exists. The thing that overwhelms the creatures closest to God, who know him the best, is how utterly different he is from everything else in other ways saying holiness yeah utterly different utterly separate utterly transcendent so everything that we have here that you know we talk about the good or the true or the beautiful or whatever these as 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 you said Tom these have their origin in god but they're also just a pale reflection of god yeah and to confuse what we've got here with what he is is a fundamental category
1: error. And it's interesting because the way Scripture presents it, I mean, think of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where you're dealing with early Trinitarian language, right? But you're seeing it use this way, way, the positive way of affirming God as the source. It's using metaphysical language. I mean, think of this. For us, there is one God, the Father from whom, this is metaphysics language, the source from whom, Um, are all things, efficient cause, right? And for whom, there's your theology, right? There's your ends language, we exist. And Christ, through whom, there's your instrumental cause, right? Through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. Um, But then Paul in Romans 20 or 1 Timothy one seventeen uses in reference to this God, negation, for example, immortal, right, or invisible. Um, so, so what is negation doing? The visible creation clearly manifests the invisible attributes of God. Seems paradoxical, but this is exactly what we're saying. That which we can know from creation, goodness, truth, and beauty clearly manifests the fact that it is not the source of these things. That source must be such that anything we refer to about that source also has to be negated, just like everything that is visible has its source, and that is beyond visibility, invisible, right? Um, and yet that invisibility is clearly seen, and that's the interesting tension that Scripture holds in place. God's transcendence, God's imminence, um, but his presence in such a way that he is always present as the transcendent one that he is.
2: Yeah. Now, you, you used the uh, terms earlier that I hadn't quite introduced yet, apophatic and cataphatic ah. <laughs> as, as approaches to theology. And these are, again, words that I think need definition for, yeah. for most people. The way I would... Really, kind of bottom line it is that when you're talking about cataphatic theology or cataphatic spirituality, the focus is in God as revealed. Mm -hmm. For apophatic, it's God as mystery. Yeah. And these line up reasonably well, although I would argue there's a bit of a difference, but they line up reasonably well with the positiva and the via negativa. Yeah. Positiva, what we can say about God, focuses on God as revealed via negativa, uh, the limitations of our language about God and our ability to understand and focus on the mystery of God.
0: I think it would be good to, to sort of expand a little bit or to help people see what we mean by revealed. So, you know, when ta- I think a lot of time when people think of Revelation, they think exclusively in terms of the, the Bible. Uh, but I think we're talking about something broader, which would include Revelation through natural order, and so forth. That's what Paul, as Paul, you know, references in Romans one and two is, you know, seeing the invisible uh, through the visible, that kind of thing. So there's a, so there, the, in, in all, in, in both, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, that's referred to as the two books, you know, you've got scripture and then you have, you know, nature, but so we're, we're talking about both these things when we're talking about revelation
1: And what's interesting, uh, great you brought that up, and and Glenn, your point too, is if you notice what happens, especially in Western theology, when these these two get uncoupled, uncoupled or pitted against each other, this is where all of our divisions and problems start to arise, right? So we have classic Christianity held together, that there is a revelation of God, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the created order. It borrowed from um, even classical philosophy, a lot of arguments and, and utilized, restored them to the truth of the gospel by showing how they, they were in congruence with it. So we had natural theology fits with it. So special revelation basically um, re, uh, perfects and, and restores natural knowledge, which has fallen away and moved into the idolatrous. When these things are brought together, we return to being able to discern the created and moral order and intentions of God fulfilled in Christ and redemptive history and brought to their perfection. When those things are held in balance, you don't have to pit reason and revelation across because you have them together. Same thing with cataphatic, well, same thing with positive language and negative. Um, what ended up happening is, like Chris said, when, when there was a break in the West from The classic way of holding these together, these two started to be viewed as basically trying to... When we use terms, we mean the exact same thing when we apply them to God. God isn't transcendent other than just bigger than us, not wholly, utterly, uniquely um, transcendent. And so that language then all becomes almost, even via negativus, starts to take on... um, a, a, a way of referring to God that is, is a form of of language familiar to us, right? Yeah. Um and and then what do you get? You get if you break them apart and you, you don't hold those together, well then if you just say every statement in the Bible means exactly the same for God as it means for us, and there's no way to understand it through the attributes of God classically understood, well then you have an idol, right? Um, and then if you rip, the if you take the via negativa and, and rip that from the positive statements, then you have uh, mystical theology, but it has nothing to put a container around it and orient it towards revelation. So in a sense, you could say liberalism, Protestant liberalism is a form of, of mystical theology ripped from the revealed propositional dimension. Whereas a lot oftentimes the propositionalists have ripped it from its, 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 the, the transcendence. And so it's, it's almost empirical, just like a, a natural science statement would be when it refers to God. And so these things held in tension classically allowed God's um, transcendent presence to be affirmed in the created order without turning the created order into to an idol or just a passive medium.
0: I think... Now, uh, Go, go ahead go, go ahead. Ahead.
2: Oh, okay the, the the interesting thing here historically i think is the introduction of the terms you just gave tom of reason and revelation you know during the middle ages there was a uh, there was a lot of intellectual energy spent on understanding the relationship between the two between philosophy and theology and so on and Without going through the details, it would take way too long. (laughs) What ends up happening, ultimately, is in the Western world specifically, reason ends up transcending revelation. And this ultimately results in something that is known as the fact-value distinction. Um, Frank Schaeffer called it upper and lower story thinking. You know, where there's a distinction between the world of faith, which would be the world of revelation, and the world of fact, which is the world of reason. And so anything that's empirically verifiable and so on falls in the realm of fact. Everything else is just sort of opinion. It's faith, it's taste, it's whatever, but it's not real. It's not really connected to something that qualifies as knowledge. Whereas in traditional Christian theology, the two are held together. The odd thing is though that what a lot of apologists today have ended up doing, a lot of theologians is they've ended up, They keep revelation in one sense, but they've ended up putting such an emphasis on reason, on developing their theological systems and things like that, that they're losing some elements really of faith here. In other words, they forget to be a negativa. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and interestingly,
1: is that reason that started to dominate in the West is one that was different from the classical Christian understanding. It's a reason basically grounded in, in, in the human and the will. It is not something grounded in, in, in the Logos. And, and, that, and then the reaction to that, however, was Neo-Orthodoxy, which made a, because it, it, it had a willed use of reason with the rationalism, it moved towards a retreat to commitment. So it just makes an irrational leap of faith into the, into the value realm. Um, And, and so it, again, we're working with polarities that didn't have to end up the way they did, because I think Christianity has the ability to hold these together. It's not easy always, but it does.
0: And I think uh, when we think about uh, this, this, the the problem that we face today uh, and how it works out uh, in both uh, thinking of uh, non-believers and in the thinking of believers, we end up oddly sharing certain, here's a word, presuppositions, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you would say, how, how could they share those presuppositions? But, but as you noted, uh, Glenn, you know, when we, when we think about a realm of fact and a realm of value, even when we think about the term "value" as though value is something that we ascribe to things rather than discover in things, um, yeah. the uh, we're dealing with this this fundamental problem, and this is why, um, you know, people like Richard Dawkins or you know Christopher Hitchens, when you think about it from the perspective that you've been describing, Tom and Glenn, uh, they're really not they're really not actually disbelieving in the Christian God, that's right. <laughs> that's they, right. they don't believe in something that has been reported to be the Christian God, but is not. <laughs> you know, that's so that, that's that's the odd that's, thing.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. One of the the uh, classic tactics that you can use with an atheist is to ask them the question, what about do you don't believe in? And they'll usually give you an answer to which you can say, "Well, I don't believe in that one either." Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's that's one. I mean, they.
1: Yeah. They're. I mean, on just on uh, one example would be the way they think of God as existing, is they think we're talking about something within the same chain of existence. They have no concept that it's the whole question of being entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the why is there something rather than nothing question. For, for them, they just they just brush that off. Well, there is something, therefore, you know, for, for scientists, that's strange to brush it off. Um, but uh, but yeah, they they do. Um, yeah, so they they're working with the deity that replaced classic Christian conception of God in the West. Once once our reference to God lost. I mean, we call it the way of analogy, and it replaced it with the way of one-to-one correspondence. God exists just like I exist, except for in a, you know, a, pre, you know, a super kind of way. Um, that's the way they're thinking. So they, when they, the question of existence applies to God, they're thinking, okay, here's existence. God is either inside the circle of existence or God isn't. That's how they're, the Dawkins and Hitchens are thinking of it. And so, and so they don't realize that, that uh, existence and non-existence, those polarities don't, don't exist for God. Because <laughs> it's like saying, and I always tell people, it's like saying um, existence itself doesn't exist. I mean, it, it, it's that kind of, that, that's absurd what they would be saying would be. Yeah
2: it it's a difference between necessary and contingent.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, and and I mean. that
2: that ends up in a lot of ways being the basic issue of of uh, negative theology that everything that we know that we see we experience is contingent and therefore it only has limited applicability to what is necessary. Yeah. So
1: but, but I think the the implications um f- for getting that balance right are, are immense and huge i mean i'll give you an example of one area we don't need to go here but think of the 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 current fashion of deconstruction right i mean what they're trying to do is is you know basically unmask all of the the kind of hidden um illegitimate or wills to power if you will the structures of power or or hierarchies Um, that are are hidden within language and meaning and reference. Um, But what they're admitting is there is something hidden within within language, and we need to kind of unmask it to get a hold of it. And so their claim would be Christians in talking about God are basically positing um, in their positive language nothing more than another attempt of will to power the wet is basically grounded in their wishes and wants and their desires and is for their own survival benefit and dominance i'm, I'm being i'm using the extreme here um, but but this is one of the areas i think this kind of stuff was um was held in place by the early church because it, when they used the language the positive and the negative drawing off of scripture um, and, and referencing God. Because what you have here, I always call it idolatry critique, via negativa is something that deconstruction can never get its hands around. It's, it's powerful. That's, that's really what my, my last class for Fight Laugh East was about, is idolatry critique is the real issue behind the structures of language and the structures of power. If, you're, if, you're, if your loves are ordered the right way and you're grounded in something whose dominance is in not in competition with the world but is the source of it, um, then you aren't masking your dominance and power. You're actually serving, serving the true and proper ends of creation. Um, but if it's illegitimate, like what is going on in all these aims and attempts by the deconstructionists and, and, uh, and all the various critical theolo- theories, um, they're basically trying to um, they're, they're basically trying to take their mythology, if you will, using the classic sense, and replace or or make that the the dominant vision that everyone needs to subscribe to, since for them, that's all there is anyway. So via negativa basically held our language in check so that we were not projecting ourselves and our power and our dominance, but we're actually trying to reference the one who who is the source of all truth, beauty and goodness for the proper flourishing of the creation
0: yeah, when we think about creation and we think about, you know, uh, its, its workings, uh, one of the things we can say is that it works. And one of the problems with deconstructionism is that these are people who've never actually made anything that works. Uh, they're real good at taking apart things that, that maybe aren't working as well as they wish they did or worked in ways that they wish they didn't or did, no you know, that, that they didn't work. But uh, if, you spend any, if you spend any time with these people in actual, you know, actually trying to get things done, and I have, um, you, you discover that everything is lost in committee with these people. They just never can seem to structure or order anything because everything is held uh, in, in abeyance because, it's a, because everybody suspects everybody else of foul play. So you know you, you you end up with a in, with a world that's utterly atomized, in the yeah. sense that people don't really know each other. They can't enjoy communion with each other. They're very defensive all the time, um, and they're and they're, they're hostile and suspicious of one another. And there's there's no um, well, as I said, communion. There's and that and it, and that's what people I think are denying. Uh, When they completely submerge themselves in this deconstructionist frame of mind, they're denying their own finitude and they're denying their own uh, contingency and neediness. Um, And, you know, I I, I think you get my drift. this, This is a formula for... Now, you know, when you think about it, what is it, what is deconstruction? It's taking things apart. Okay. When do we put something together? (laughs) Never according to these people. It
2: it actually goes beyond that as well in that they deny that, that the, that things that exist have any intrinsic purpose or meaning. Uh, Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, we've talked about teleology many times. It may have been a while now since we've, we've come back to this topic, but things have natural ends. They have natural purposes. You know, even our language, ooh, language, uh, even our language reflects this. I mean, you know, my, the example I use all the time is in biology, your genitals are used to generate life. Mm-hmm. They are part of something that is known in biology as the reproductive system.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Have a natural end. They have a natural purpose. And this is self-evident to anyone who thinks about it. And yet, somehow, the things that ought to be obvious, Romans 1, the things that ought to be obvious to us aren't.
0: And yeah, this is where the fact-value distinction comes in again. You know, some of these folks will say, Well, that's right, Glenn. Those are the facts, but values are what really are important to us, and consequently, we don't value reproduction. What we value is self-expression, and that's why I have, you know, gender number thirty-seven in the scale of I don't know how many genders they've got now. Seventy-two is the last count I heard, but because it's entirely a matter of the exercise of your will to make something so, and anyone who denies that uh that you know statement about yourself is in some sense uh being you know committing violence with you so what ends up happening this goes back to my point is you end up being radically isolated if everyone is 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 you know defined solely by uh their own self definitions then uh utterly we're utterly isolated from one another we're not participating in anything larger than ourselves
2: yeah, and in fact, what we've got is an inversion of the fact-value distinction. It used to be the facts were the thing that were really important yeah, and true, and now it is in its values. We've, right. We've been-
1: it's, yeah. You're right, and it's, it, it's interesting that, um, I mean, one of the things you really see is the war against form. Um, because for them, I mean, Christians are at war with form in the sense that form has become imprisoned to on. Un- just um, but when redemption hits and the first fruits of that redemption um, start to take, take expression in, in creation through the church and the spirit in the church, there is a res- restoration and a renewal taking place, a perfecting. Um, so it isn't an abandonment, it's a resurrection of a body, right? That form brought back to, into its perfection. So we don't do away with Genesis, right? It's being perfected and renewed. Um, But for them, they want to do away with Genesis. They want to take all of that form and ordering towards flourishing, and ultimately it's fulfillment in union with God. Notice the garden. You have been given this place of flourishing and this form and this order, this this nature filled with laws for our own flourishing and yet we commune with God in the fullness of the day, right? Um, these things are not in, in conflict with each other when they're balanced the right. But see, my argument has been, as a form of sin, is an idolatrous replacement of the Christian God with a with an alternative view, um, but the reason they're suspicious of all form is because originally, back when I when started to be conceived of as imposing a will rather than a, a good will itself, um, an intelligible will, then that form basically meant that God limit my freedom. But if I, I'm similar to God in the sense that I am in God's image as an imposer of meaning, in order for me to genuinely impose my own meaning on the world and be like God, I have to be the one doing it, right? And so they have a weird way of taking the, the voluntarist God and turning it into the, 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 the human being, the understanding of the human being that modernity and post-modernity hold to. And so they're at war with any other type of imposition because it limits, it limits their godlike. And then the other thing, last point, um, is that they want a transcendence, but they want one to be completely severed from the limits of our contingency in our embodied state. And I think the show we did a little while ago on Athanasius and the Incarnation is a real compliment to that. Because think of Michel Foucault, his debate with Noam Chomsky. Um, Chomsky was wanting uh, basically to have some kind of purpose in teleology, but he didn't know where to find it. But he knew we needed it, and he called it creativity. It was the romantic view, right? But Foucault really, I think, challenged him. He said, basically, all you're doing is taking a value from that same corrupted structure of values, and you're just idealizing it and and saying that's what we should all aim at. And so Foucault wanted to, he didn't know how to transcend that whole structure of power that was basically distortative of our natures, right? Uh, Rousseau, right? Nature pollutes us. And and he wants to transcend it, but he tries to do it merely by entering into an indulgence with it. Right? He he ends up in, in it's all self gratification and fulfillment of his own wants, lusts, and desires. So they when you when you lose hold of what what Christianity holds together, you end up with a mess. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Well,
2: and, and, and you know, I, I'm,
0: I'm good.
2: Good.
0: go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I think I think uh, I just, I'll be just quick here. I think that when we think about judgment. Uh, sometimes we think about it in a voluntarist terms exclusively. Now, I believe in a God who descends and judges, but I also believe that the yeah. way uh, things are are constructed, uh, it, 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 they they are constructed in so you know in the sense uh, that when you depart from the sort of the, the the integrity of the construction, you you die. You know, you you. Yeah. So, so when we think about. Uh, you know sort of the state of affairs in our world today and we worry about you know what is what's happening in our to the social fabric of our of the in our country or our community or what have you because of all the things we've been describing well um there's there it will come to an end uh (laughs) our 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 job is not so much to uh you know speed it along it's got its own momentum it's moving pretty quick um our our challenge (laughs) is to sort of you know, uh, strengthen those things which remain, if you know what I mean, and to uh, uh, build up the church, uh, defend the church against this kind of uh, the acids of, of, you know, all of this uh, way of thinking, and um, and when things are when things are uh, really in keeping with the nature of things uh, they flourish. There is a, just kind of a flourishing that occurs. Uh, we don't have to force or fake or what have you. Anyway, sorry to, to go on about that Glenn.
2: I'm yeah. Gonna... Well, I'm, I'm going to bounce into political theology again. here for a moment. <laughs> And, um, uh, again, remind you of the definition of liberty. The classic definition of liberty is the freedom to make choices and to act within boundaries within boundaries set by natural law and divine law, which then should be reflected in positive law, the law that the state enacts. License is the absence of restraint. No one in the, no political theorist has ever argued we have a natural right to license, at least not until pretty recently. Um, the classic understanding was we do not have any natural right to license, but we do have a natural right to liberty. So the question is where do those boundaries fall? And the interesting thing that, that occurred to me today is fundamentally what the Ten Commandments are about are telling us where those boundaries are. The Ten Commandments are not, are not restrictions on our behavior so much as telling us where the fences are within which we can act freely and have true liberty. You know, the the negatives in the Ten Commandments are saying these are the places you can't cross safely. These are the places where you are going to run into real problems, but you got a whole raft of things that you can do in between them. See, So understanding liberty in this sense and freedom in this sense, freedom is liberty, I think is really ends up being critically important for us.
1: And that, that freedom for, for is, is premised. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that's, that's what's distinguished is Christianity and classic views of freedom from these, these, um, these modern and postmodernists. They, their notion of freedom is that it, it, it's almost like the voluntarist God. It's just spontaneous and ungoverned by anything. And so, but Christianity, no true freedom is the truthful enactment of our creatureliness. It's the ability to unfold um, what we are and why we're here and what what we're for. And so, what the commandments are doing is they're premising our freedom. They're giving it the 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 form, the the shape under the conditions of a fallen world. On what it looks like to live faithfully to God and neighbor in such a way that genuine freedom is, you know, is the result when it's able to be carried out. And that's why when you, if you think about it, what is when the spirit descends on the church and internalizes this um, in a way, you know, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, which sets us for, free from the law of sin and death. And so we carry out now um, what, what the law couldn't do because of the flesh, right? Um, this ability to love, you know, the fruit of the spirit, if you will. Um, the freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God, is not to do whatever you want, but it's to be able to do something you're unable to do apart from participating in in the Spirit, who is the fulfillment of the law in us.
0: I think that there's a wide range of of expression within those boundaries. I think that and and those uh, expressions can be variegated and and diverse. Now, there's a word that are. Uh, postmodernist <laughs> friends love to hear. But, but I think that, you know, when you think about, a, say, a person, say, like uh, Russell Kirk, you know, the uh, paleoconservative, social conservative thinker, uh, one of the things that he uh, thought uh, was, you know, sort of central to uh, a paleoconservative understanding of social order is diversity in, the, in that sense, in the sense that, we say, like, when we look at the natural world and we say, okay, look at all the kinds of trees there are. But look at all the look at the range of of you know shapes and sizes we we, we see when we look at leaves and the, they're, they're the range of colors so you have form you 've got things that you can say are leaves you've got things you can say are trees and yet the the range of expression is marvelous It's 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 really why uh You know the world is tolerable in in a certain sense. You know, uh, if if every if every tree were exactly the same shape and height, and uh, you know every leaf the same, you know, then yeah, we would be completely uh, oppressed by form. But there's a great range of um, expression, and we can think about it in terms of human cultures. Even, you know, um, you can have. Uh, really beautifully ordered uh, and good uh, cultural environments that can differ from each other and, and, still be, and still both be good. You know, when you look at, say, you know, traditional cultures from around the world, there are certain things that, that they, they all seem to have in common, and yet there's this, this marvelous variety that we also see.
2: And I think it's important to recognize that that's also true in the church, So let's go back to our positive and negative approaches to God or the cataphatic and apophatic. The Western world, the Latin Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, and so on has tended to put a lot of emphasis on the cataphatic. I don't think that that God is revealed. I don't think that is found to a greater degree anywhere than in Reformed theology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, the that's Eastern right. Orthodox world, has <laughs> tended, the Eastern Orthodox world has tended to emphasize apophatic theology, the mystery of God. It's not to say that they don't focus on the, on revelation, but but their theological sensibilities tend to lean more toward a recognition of the utter transcendence of God and of the mystery of God, whereas in the West, we have tended to put much more focus on the revelation in scripture, and let's analyze that and get as far as we can with that.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it it's interesting. Mystery, that
2: but there's emphasis there.
1: Something I, I'll never forget, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, when he was going to debate uh, the president of the Baptist Seminary in, in, uh, in uh, Wake Forest, uh, Virginia. He walked into the. He walked into their chapel, and he said, "This looks just like my living room." <laughs> um, and and his point was that um, it became so familiar, and, and the language was so familiar that it wasn't being governed by doctrine of God, all of the revealed theology. So it was the, it, it was used in the same sense as you use it with everything else. That hyper literalism, oftentimes, I'm. I'm, I'm I stereotype sometimes. I know people, I know there are mature sides of it and, and good work done The balance of the doctrine of God with redemptive history. I'm talking about the, the kind of everyday way it lands on the lap of a lot of people. Um, and, and that, 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 that mystery, the mystery of God um, tends to be something uncomfortable. I mean, it almost gets into the feely, the feely world. Um, and, and, the, and so it's, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this actually, uh, you know, segues nicely into this chart that you sent us, Glenn. Uh, I don't know if you're right. planning to get to that.
2: Yeah, I, w- I was going to be heading in that general direction if we had time. It looks like well, I've got a few more minutes. <laughs> um, a-, a chart that I got from Ken Boa, but which was originally developed by a guy named Urban Holmes, um, sets up a kind of Cartesian grid with the. Horizontal axis being cataphatic on one end and apophatic on the other. God is revealed versus God as uh, mystery. And the vertical axis on the top is heart and on the bottom, excuse me, top is mind and bottom is heart. So what this does is it sets up spirituality in four quadrants where you're either emphasizing God as revealed and putting an emphasis on the mind, God is mystery and putting emphasis on the mind, God as mystery and putting emphasis on the heart. God as revealed and putting emphasis on the heart. And the idea here is that spiritual growth consists really of circling the center. That what you want to avoid is going to an extreme in any of the quadrants. So your your God as revealed and mind, that turns into rationalism. Uh, dogmatic, uh, the, overly dogmatic. Uh, God is mystery. Emphasizing the mind turns into moralism if you push it too far. Um, mystery and heart. If you push it too far, it's quietism. Yeah. Revelation and heart. You push it too far, and it's pietism.
0: Now that that you know, just, yeah, that distinction I'd like to think about a little bit that about. Go into an yeah I'd like to think a little bit about the distinction between quietism and pietism. So mm. uh to me those those uh I've never really thought about them in uh, in this in this way to to distinguish them but let me just sort of throw out an idea. I guess quietism actually is a kind of passivity before you know God and it's just a uh kind of you know case case I guess. <laughs> Whereas pietism was would be more kind of directed toward a set of things that you're you know, you're you're doing a certain you're doing certain things. Um so you're mm-hmm. active with pietism. But uh your but your piet but your act your activity is oriented toward your inner life uh as opposed to um you know your your uh, thought life, and I what I mean by that is reason or social action, which would be, I guess, what moralism, you know, what you get into with regard to ordering society and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. The, the distinction that they make here is the the pietist accepts the concept that there's a certain amount of doctrine. There's a certain amount of truth that you're going to be focusing on that you're going to, going to, going to embrace, but that it, but that is less a matter of the mind than a matter of the heart. It's yeah, so maybe- your heart, your experiential encounter with God. It's your experience of God and experience of these truths makes you a pietist. Mm-hmm. Whereas the way they've got it distinguished here, the quietist is someone who recognizes that God is mystery. We're never going to get him. And there is, like you said, a kind of, a, in its extreme form, there's a kind of passivity in there where it's just a matter of some sort of emotional experience that doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of content to it. Yeah. It's sort of, of like, m-
0: yeah, Madam, yeah, Madam Guyon or maybe uh Quaker's uh, Quakerism would be the quietism. Mm. And then the, uh, although with Quakerism, you've got, a, you know, an active component. There was, you know, kind of uh, an ethic that often went with Quakerism, but, but then with pietism, maybe you're talking about the Moravians, I guess. Uh, certain. Yep, that'd
2: be a good example.
0: Yeah. And then with uh excessive uh you know rationalism, maybe we're talking about i don't know um, you know uh a very abstract you know sort of thing and maybe maybe we're talking about a um, kind of theology that is uh associated with or the way people think about say scholasticism you know where it's just right. looking looking at syllogisms all the time. Um, or certainly, yeah. It's
2: just, it's just, let let let's make sure we get our doctrine right. And getting your doctrine right is the only thing that really matters. Right, right. And yeah, and it's, and that so differs
1: from. I mean, even the way a lot of the scholastics understood <clears throat> from the, the contemplative is a, is a is a bringing of all of this into its its center. I mean, that's it's moving from the economy of God and, and God's actions to God as the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And so um, I used to say there's, you know, there's more to the gospel than the gospel. It's the God of the gospel. In other words, we come to know God in the gospel, right? Um, But we come to know God in the gospel. And so there is this, it's God coming to us. And, and, you know, so that as Athanasius said beautifully, we can come up into the inner, the communion with the inner life of God, the the eternal Trinity, not just the, the Trinity come to us. Um, that the same Trinity, but we are being brought from the Trinity come to us up into communing with the very eternal Trinity. And so that's why the contemplative things like the the invisible attributes of God and and all of those things that, that the eternal attributes of God, which are via negativa, most of them, were at the heart of classic spirituality, because in contemplating them, we were converted from our this worldliness and our loves were reordered. So all the piety and worship followed because we were oriented to the truth of who God is and communing with that inner life. And so um, those things were, again, held the right
2: way, um, or tried to be. I mean, no one had it exact. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and the stereotype we have of the scholastics is really not fair. Yeah. I mean, not true to them. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but the interesting thing is that, uh, again, Ken Boa, a guy I've worked with a great deal, says if, if you... If you look at this chart, well, uh, one thing I will tell you is that just about everybody I know in the Reformed world is in the upper right corner.
1: <laughs> They're
2: all cataphatic, that is to say, revealed an emphasis on mind. Yeah. He says the way you develop spiritually, the way you grow, the spiritual formation is most easily or most directly achieved by working in the diagonal opposite quadrant. Mm-hmm. because yeah. Jesus was the only one who was a zero-zero. He was the only <laughs> one who, was, who had everything in balance. Yeah, <laughs> Spiritual growth really consists of sort of circling the center. Yeah. But what you want to do if you are a KM, cataphatic mind, is you want to work more on the AH, apophatic heart, because that's going to help bring you into balance. You know, when I because think about...
0: Yeah. When I think about like, uh, the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, you know, here's a guy who is an Anglican reformed Anglican and, um, was definitely, you know, a guy who placed a lot of stress on content, but he also impressed me as having a deeply, uh, real, um, kind of, uh, warmth and, uh, Christian experience. Uh, it wasn't as though he was, uh, just, uh, you know, sort of an egghead or something. Um so now there there's an example of a guy I think, you know, we would say, well, uh he belongs in the upper right hand quadrant there with the mind, but it, that wasn't all it was about.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think at the beginning of that he actually quotes a Spurgeon quote which talks about this whole notion of, of actually contemplating knowing God, right? The point of it all. But that's that's the key. I mean, Augustine, it was it's all over the the different theologians of the church, but I mean, you see it with Augustine too. It's the ordering of our loves the right way is is completed in this is, this, this you know, knowing the you know, I think what uh, Matthew Barrett recently called the you know contemplating the undomesticated attributes of God, right? Um, and so I think c. s. Lewis said, said it very similarly, you know, aim for heaven, you get everything. Aim for for, for the world and, and you get neither in the end. Um, but I think they were, they were all after this, this, um, but, but again, it's not just aiming for heaven. Isn't as Glenn just said, it isn't simply about just talking about the way in which those verses are familiar. It's also the undomesticated ap- aspects, which this is what the apophatic is trying to deal with. It's, um, I, I remember, I think it was one of my uh, former teachers, uh, Jeffrey Wainwright used to say is that, um, um, reason, reason, Biblical reasoning in our worship, um, well, in our theology, is basically bringing us up where revealed theology uh, takes us into the threshold of the incomprehensible God, for which the next reasonable step is worship, where language breaks down because there isn't anything you say when you're in the awe of the infinite one to whom you've been invited a share. Um, and this is sort of why, what happens when they encounter that in Christ, what happens when they go to that which is beyond their intellectual and physical capacity, they, they bow, they, they become undone, right? I mean, that's the place at which, which you, you're encountering that mystery which transcends every, every familiar thing that God uses to, to show us himself.
0: Yeah, just it kind of as to wrap up here, I think you know one of the things that people are you know fear when they send their young preacher boys off to seminary is that they'll become uh, atheists because they've uh, you know invested themselves in the life of the mind in a way that is uh, uh, you know that sacrifices uh, the, the the kind of experiential religion that the that the child was uh, the young man was introduced to God through um, but what's probably I think uh, a better way of re- thinking about it is the way that you exercise the mind, if if the mind is being exercised in a way so as to define and master uh, you know God through understanding you know the definitions and the syllogisms and the and the doctrines, well then. Uh, you are sort of present you're sort of receding from the scene you're not actually engaged uh, with god and when when you're genuinely engaged with knowing God and you come to the end of yourself as you just described tom you you find yourself actually uh, in a in a state of worship as opposed to yeah. disbelief so there's yeah. something there's something wrong with the way that's that the that many people are going about this whole exercise of knowing God intellectually. If they find themselves at a place where, you know, suddenly their, their, their Christian faith has lost its, its richness or, you know, it's lost hold of them well you you didn't actually do it the right way then
1: <laughs> yeah and and it is interesting that I mean I remember uh, my my late doctor Father John Webster. I had heard later that he he was started to to read a lot more of the the medieval theologian' stuff. He was a reformed theologian, but he was talking writing a lot on Aquinas at the time. He said really i I've, I've discovered this with almost every theologian I studied. is you cannot understand there." systematic or dogmatic reflections apart from their prayers their, their written <laughs> prayers and their exegetical work <laughs> this is worship for them and all that cognitive dimension is is preparatory for worship it's 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 not meant to be like glenn's talking about out this this system in which you've ma you've you're master over it's right. something that is trying to push you to that into the mystery
0: right well we've got to the end of our time here and it's Important to wrap things up, I think. But uh, Glenn, is there anything you want to you want to finish with?
2: Yeah, I want to give a recommendation for a book. And to be honest with you, this may be a little bit intimidating. This is the size of the book. Okay. Uh, called Conform to His Image. Uh, it's by Ken Boa, who is one of my mentors. Um, Ken is um, he's one of these people that it's kind of hard to believe the range of things that he does. Uh, But what this is, it's um, it's literally a textbook on spiritual formation. His metaphor is that spirituality is like a jewel. It's a single thing, but there are a lot of different facets to it. And in this book, he gives a really thorough discussion of 12 different facets of spirituality. And a lot of what I've said about apophatic and cataphatic is really a reflection of some of the stuff that I've gotten from this book. Um, it's been released in a second edition now from Zondervan. There's actually a full curriculum that goes with it, uh, DVDs, workbooks, things like that. But highly recommended if this is a topic that you want to pursue further. Um, and I, I just think it's a you know a fabulous resource for you. Um, but along with that, again, I want to emphasize the idea that you know this this via negativa or apathetic theology is not a bad thing. It's actually a necessary part of what we should be doing in our understanding and our pursuit of God. We should be aware of this. We should be pursuing this. And even ideas, apathetic theology is the foundation for mysticism. And there is a kind of positive, well, let's not use the word positive here. It's confusing. There is a kind of good mysticism legitimate mysticism that exists within Christianity and we're afraid of that it's one of these things that we ought to that we legitimately ought to be pursuing so I want to put in a good word for the apophatic via negativa stuff because I think it's really important (laughs) for us and a good balance for the kind of rationalistic you know approach that we tend to uh, apply to Christianity in the West
0: all right anything you want to add there Tom
1: yeah, it's fundamentally biblical. I mean, St. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. <laughs> and these were things he was not going to come down and talk about, right? He was going <laughs> to deal with the level of talking, but this was a, a part of his. And that, that's part of what being brought into knowing the Trinity is to be caught up into the third heaven. Um, and, and I don't mean this in a in a, um, a fuzzy kind of way. I mean, it's strictly in a, in a biblical way as, is to know the eternal God. And and you can't do it apart from this this rich spirituality that the Bible has in a very full sense, and not a, in a, a very choppy, split compartmentalized sense.
0: All right. Well, that's good stuff. It's a good place to end. I don't have anything to add. This has been a, a, a rich conversation, and uh, we we appreciate your listening to the show, folks. Uh, thank you for listening to the to the theology podcast, and. Uh, we're uh, in different parts of the country right now. It's that time of year between Christmas and New and, and uh, New Year's where nothing really seems to be happening, and, uh, except people eating too much cake and too much pie and, and cookies and stuff like that. Cookies, very true. <laughs> <laughs> About
1: but, uh, to go have
0: some more. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we'll we'll roll it. We'll roll ourselves out in a in a, in a week and do another show, and uh, hopefully you'll be back with us again. So thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.
2: Bye bye. Bye.